0: Hey, you're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast.
1: Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia. Today we have a really, really, really cool guest on the show. We've got Paige, who's a PhD student in marine evolutionary biology. It's a thing. Welcome to the show,
0: Paige. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited, a little nervous, but very excited to be here. So thank you.
1: Absolute pleasure. And there is literally nothing to be nervous about right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'll hopefully start with a a nice little question that will ease you in. What Mm -hmm. is your job?
0: Easy one. Yeah. So I'm a PhD student with the University of Western Australia, and then I'm a research associate at the West Australian Museum. So kind of gets to combine a bit of PhD life with a bit of real life experience working with the museum's collections and lab work, computer work, a bit of everything. So yeah, I kind of have the best best job ever. <laughs> I really love it. I get to work with weird and wonderful animals, amazing people. So yeah, it's a bit of, it's a, bit of a fun day to day for sure.
1: Fantastic. Do you want to start by telling us a little bit about some of your research?
0: Yeah, of course. So currently, I'm two and a bit years into my PhD, where I'm looking at an Antarctic nudibranch or Antarctic sea slug species complex. Um, This means that I am kind of applying molecular techniques or molecular biology to look at the DNA of this group of sea slugs down in Antarctica that were originally described as a single species. But through the work I've been doing over the past few years, we found out that it's actually over 65 new species and counting so we're still kind of finding more and more each day um, so I work with those sea slugs and then after descri- well after f- figuring out how many we are dealing with we're also looking at a bit of their diet and a bit of their chemical compound makeup in their skin because sea slugs don't have shells so they have to kind of protect themselves in one way or another Some of them use camouflage, whereas others use really highly toxic compounds, which makes them taste really bad. But these are of human interest because a few of these compounds have been shown to inhibit the growth of a human form of leukemia. So we're also trying to look into these compounds, trying to figure out the evolutionary history of these compounds and hopefully find some new potential marine drugs from these animals as well, which is bit more down the track, but yeah, it's really cool because I get to combine evolutionary biology, chemical ecology, biodiversity, bit of everything, which is really fun.
1: There was a lot in that. No, I'm
0: so sorry. sorry. It,
1: it all sounds really cool. I've got a couple of, I have multiple follow-up
0: questions. Great.
1: The first one is, I always thought it was pronounced
0: nudibranch. branch. <laughs> you and about 99.9% of the population. <laughs> um, so they're actually, yeah, they're nudie branch, and that's because, so nudie and brank itself is, it's all derived from Greek words, and I think it's nudis and branchia. So nudis means naked, branchia means gills, so the Latin description of the animal is essentially naked gills or naked lungs because they have these kind of beautiful florets on the back of a lot of them that are their gills because they once upon a time were wrapped up into a shell but as these animals have evolved and lost their shell their their gills are now in these beautiful kind of feathery assemblages on their back which are kind of intricately designed to increase surface area to volume ratio so they can absorb as much oxygen from the water as possible. But yes, yeah, so they have these beautiful open gills which make them nudis branchia, naked gills, nudibranch.
1: Fantastic. The next one, I'm just going to sound like a duffer this entire episode, I think. <laughs> I kind of have always associated nudibranchs with being, needing to be warm. And Antarctica is notably Mm -hmm. not warm. (laughs) I would have kind of assumed they would have frozen.
0: Yeah, no, it's so true. I think a lot of people have that assumption as well. You see these beautiful tropical coral reefs and along with the coral and sponge, yeah, you generally see these beautiful sea butterflies hanging around. But um, yeah, so Antarctica itself is actually an incredibly diverse marine ecosystem. Um, I think currently there's about seven and a half thousand described animals within the Antarctic region but work's been done to project that there's up to anywhere between 11 and 17,000 benthic marine species so these are just the animals that live on the seafloor in the ocean so there is just so much life going on there from yeah everything from sea slugs to sponges and corals to sea stars brittle stars But, yeah, so it's just it's a hugely diverse marine ecosystem a lot because so temperature, they can completely evolve to any kind of temperature. So, yeah, temperature they're not too worried about at all. It's more the actual glacial cycles they have to worry about because as the ice freezes over winter, the ice sheets kind of increase and advance across this continental shelf so yeah the ice literally obliterates whole benthic ecosystems because it's just moving at such a slow but steady pace and these animals some are sedentary and not going to move others are so slow like sea slugs that they just will get wiped out but yeah there's kind of this big biodiversity pump theory within the Antarctic that talks about how these glaciers either leave pockets of unfrozen area where these animals can kind of move into and stay alive and evolve or diverge and speciate, so then you kind of get new and new, new species evolving from the Antarctic, which then get pushed out into the Southern Ocean and further into the wider pelagic systems. But it's also because the Antarctic continental shelf is so old, so it's one of like the oldest continental shelves the world so there's just been a lot of time for animals to speciate and stay and kind of take over so yeah it's amazing it's um one of the most diverse marine ecosystems in the world and it's very understudied for how many animals there are down there absolutely and i mean of course that's because of the climate that it's in being so cold being so harsh being dark for half the year dealing with massive waves glaciers all those things make it really hard to go down there and study these animals so yeah it's obviously there's just not that much done on the environment so people don't know how biodiverse it is so yeah that's why I, that's certainly what drew me in was getting to work on something incredibly biodiverse but also incredibly hard to capture in terms of a quick phd in terms of the life of these animals so yeah, it's crazy diverse down there.
1: So am I right in understanding that that glacial cycle concept where like the, the shelf freezes over and then melts, that ha- that'll happen annually, right?
0: Correct, yes. So there's, yeah, these annual cycles which are mm. not as aggressive as the kind of global history cycle of glacial cycles. So they're called Milankovitch cycles and they're related to how the globe itself kind of tiffs tilts and shifts and things like that. So they happen on like thousands and thousands of years cycles. But then, yes, you absolutely get these annual cycles where the shallower organisms are getting hit with new ice growth every single year, absolutely.
1: I'm wondering if that's related to one of the concepts of intermittent disturbance hypothesis where like with the right amount of disturbance in an ecosystem, you end up with a lot more richness in biodiversity.
0: Yeah, maybe, maybe, absolutely. I haven't looked too much into it, no. I'll have to send you a link.
1: Please. It's it's all to do with like why with the right amount of disturbance, you get a really healthy ecosystem with too little or too much, like either there's not enough change and everything becomes a boring wasteland or there's Mm -hmm. too much change and everything's dead.
0: Yeah, right. Amazing. Oh, my gosh, I've got some reading to do this
1: afternoon. (laughs) so earlier you mentioned you found at least 65 new species Mm -hmm. congratulations do you get to name
0: them unfortunately no to do that oh no another 10 or so years so I mean it's something that will always be so close to my heart and maybe one day I can but in terms of the current taxonomic method for describing a new species you really need adequate sampling of that one species and then you need full anatomy studies done so I'd have to kind of dissect a whole lot look at the shapes and sizes of different organs and body parts and everything like that so it's just it truly is another four PhDs on top of mine to be able to describe that many new animals and I mean people spend their whole lives doing that describing animal after animal especially in the museums that's yeah an integral part of taxonomic work and biodiversity studies is to get these animals named so then we can formally put them and their records into management plans and things like that but it's just it's such a huge amount of work that yeah unfortunately in my PhD lifetime I won't get to name any Which is definitely a bit sad because I've certainly got a list of names that are high up there that one day I would love to put on animals and dedicate them to certain people in my life for sure. But, yeah, not within the next few years, I'm afraid.
1: I feel like that's something a lot of us wouldn't necessarily know is how much effort goes in. You sort of think, oh, I found a new thing, I'm going to label it Fred and that's it.
0: (laughs) definitely definitely absolutely and honestly that's the first question i always get asked it's like oh wow new species what are you going to call them but yeah i um work with people who will spend 5 years describing one thing and that's all just based off yeah you really do have to have enough sampling enough measurements things like that and i think now we're moving into a phase where we are discovering biodiversity at such a fast rate because we have all these new molecular techniques which can kind of do what my project's done and take a whole bunch of animals that look the exact same, apply molecular tools and realise, oh, wow, we actually have so many new species all from the same areas, all overlapping distributions, all looking the same but are so different. So I think taxonomy and systematics are also moving in that direction where they are realising that with these new tools we need new systematic methods to be able to put names on things at a much faster rate. Otherwise we really are just going to be so far behind. So I hope that does happen. And I hope, I hope we are able to incorporate sequences, like full DNA sequences of these animals that we're generating into taxonomic descriptions. I think that would be really cool. And I think I'm kind of in the right position now that perhaps that will be in my near future, I hope. Cause I think that's really cool to be able to say like, yes, we have new species, here's the DNA done, next, which would be, obviously that's highly simplified, but that's a really exciting avenue of this type of science, I think, is generating these new species descriptions at a faster rate. So I think that is, yeah, hopefully where the science is going, but it's a little it's a little slow going at the moment.
1: It, it makes sense. It's a really old field. Definitely, absolutely. So you're looking at nudibranchs on the bottom of the ocean, I'm assuming, yep. In Antarctica. Do you want to talk a little bit about going down there and getting samples and how you how you catch them, what you do with them once you've caught them? That that sort of stuff.
0: Of course. Yeah, definitely. So my project has been designed around about 30 years worth of sampling, which is so incredible. And that's why I've been able to do what we've done is because my wonderful supervisor has been kind of keeping this animal in her sights for such a long time that every kind of research vessel that goes down into the Antarctic or any benthic survey that's been done over the past 10, 20 years, if they have collected any of these animals, the species I'm working on is called Doris coagulonensis. So anytime this animal has been collected, um, my supervisor's either been noticed, notified or knows about it or has collected it herself, um, along with another supervisor of mine his name is Dr Bill Baker he's in the US he actually goes to Palmer Station which is on the West Antarctic Peninsula and he dives for them which is an absolute dream of mine to be in the Antarctic Ocean surrounded by these weird and wonderful things and then getting to swim up to a sponge and pluck off a sea slug I think that would just be amazing and the stories he's told me are just like jaw-droppingly beautiful and crazy and wow um but yeah so these sea slugs this specific species specific species comes from anywhere between ankle deep water to just over 800 meters is my deepest record of one which is wild in itself because that is just so so much water on top of these animals but yeah they're either collected by diving if they're shallow or then you can do a whole bunch of things from sending a remotely operated vehicle down to kind of film the seafloor and use the ROVs mechanic arms to pick up these sea slugs and bring them back to the surface or when doing biodiversity surveys they do a lot of small scale trawling so not trawling as if like big fish trawling just like sending a little bucket or a slate down to the seafloor and kind of dragging it along and that way you can pick up everything in that one area just to kind of give you a big overview and so yeah sea slugs are picked up that way and then they're collected which is amazing and for DNA work, we really need the DNA to be preserved as quickly and as cleanly as possible. So we use ethanol, usually at a high percentage of like 96% alcohol or higher, and that just really preserves the tissue and the DNA and the specimen for long-term purposes, which is really great for museum purposes. You can have things in ethanol for years and years and years and years, and they can be used for research for now or research for 20 years from now and Things like that is pretty amazing. And then freezing them, of course, increases that longevity even more. But, yeah, so I've not personally collected a sea slug myself. I um, went to try and collect some earlier this year for a couple months, but we unfortunately didn't collect any sea slugs. But that was – we were sampling really deep water, so I wasn't too surprised and to be honest, I wasn't really that sad. Anything we did collect is like magic when you're thinking about the fact that it's from the bottom of the ocean and potentially never been seen before. It's pretty special, so I wasn't too sad that there were no slugs, but it would have been nice.
1: <laughs> I'm a little bit sorry for you. <laughs>
0: Thank you. I'm trying to look at it in the best light. No slugs from yeah, from one of the places where they would technically described from so we were in Kerguelen Plateau and this animal's kerguelenensis so it would have been a real wow moment but still the fact that I was in the region and things like that is yeah more special than I could probably try and describe I guess.
1: But so you did get to do a ship-based voyage
0: I did, yes. I um, went in the first week of January this year and then we came back in the second week of March. It was, uh, yeah, so two months of we went down to Kerguelen Plateau, which is in the Southern Ocean bordering on the Antarctic Ocean. Um, And we were doing uh, dredging, which is where you send this, yeah, like big metal not a bucket but yeah it's like this big kind of metal sheath and you send that down and you scrape along and pull up a whole lot of rocks and then I was my job on board was to kind of pull off any living organisms off these rocks or inside the rocks and try and figure out what they were preserve them properly take samples for DNA things like that so yeah it was two months surrounded by snow and wandering albatross and southern ocean waves and wind and long days of sunlight because yeah being at that altitude and latitude sorry it was amazing it was really incredible um, yeah and then we came back and it was as if it never happened it was just yeah two months went in two seconds I guess
1: was that on the investigator it was
0: yes yeah so it was CSIRO MNF And then it was the chief investigator, Dr. Mike Coffin, is from the University of Tasmania. So he's a geophysicist and he was looking at the seafloor structure and trying to figure out how the break between there's a place called Williams Ridge and a place called Broken Ridge and they were trying to map both of these places to then... Um, model them back together and model them back to how the tectonic plates would have moved apart, and kind of talk about how that's Australia's da- a land down on Kerguelen Plateau, and then they're trying to extend the sovereign land rights of Australia even further by saying that they were once connected, which is pretty cool.
1: There's some very complicated political things <laughs> in there. Yeah.
0: Oh my goodness, yeah, that type of stuff. I was like, it's. It's too political for me. I'll just look at the weird squishy thing on the rock. Thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll hang out with the worms there. <laughs> yeah, so. Exactly that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for anyone listening who's a bit curious, you're welcome to do your own Googling of like the Antarctic Treaty, blah, blah, blah. Mm, definitely. Have fun.
0: <laughs> yeah. It is a lot. You definitely need like, a good pack of Tim Tams when you do it for sure. Yeah, and
1: probably <laughs> a caffeinated beverage.
0: <laughs> yes, definitely. Coffee
1: helps a lot. <laughs> that does sound lovely though. Like even though, like I'm sorry you didn't you didn't get to catch one of your critters, but no, all good. You got to have a good adventure.
0: Definitely, yeah, once in a lifetime type of trip for sure. Yeah.
1: So what, bearing in mind, obviously, that days on a ship are quite a bit different, what does an average day at work look like for you?
0: Sure. So, um, yeah, as I said before, I'm mixed between my PhD, which is absolutely full-time. And so for me, that is either I'm in a lab, either cutting up sea slug tissue, extracting the DNA from that tissue, then using a PCR or polymerase chain reaction heat cycler to amplify essentially photocopy this DNA and then we visualize it and then I will either be preparing these samples of this newly amplified DNA to be sent off to um, a different facility to then be sequenced And then, So those sequences come back to me and I kind of edit them if they have some ambiguities going on or if they're a bit messy, anything like that. And then I, yeah, look at these sequences against a whole bunch of other sequences from every different sample and then that's how we try and figure out what are new species, what are not. So, yeah, I do a lot of, yeah, lab work, computer work. Um, A PhD is also dedicated to communicating this research. So after doing all this amazing lab work, yeah, I do sit down for lots of time, lots of days and try and digest all of the literature that's already out there in my field or in related fields. So lots of reading and then I do a lot of writing myself. So yeah, I write my results. I write summaries of other people's work that are related to mine and things like that and then yeah working with the museum means I get to also help with a lot of other people's research which is really fun so I've just kind of spent the last few weeks um working on pseudoscorpions which are these tiny little arachnids that live on land and have nothing to do with my work but things like that so yeah working in a molecular lab you kind of get to handle and touch all these other different organisms which are amazing but yeah, big mix of coffee, lab work, computer work, writing and reading. It's kind of a big day, but a pretty standard day. <laughs> What's a pseudoscorpion? <laughs> Honestly, I'm not the best person to ask, but they are um uh, they're a sister to sister species to spiders and scorpions. And so they're tiny. The ones I've seen are yeah, two to five millimeters. And they live in kind of, I've seen them in like grass trees and things like that. And they have these two forefront pincers that are really long and skinny. But yeah, they're an arachnid of sorts, I think. But yeah, absolutely the worst person to ask. But they're a cool thing to Google, for sure. They're really interesting. There's not much work being done on them either. So yeah, they're really cool. They're definitely something that are fun to know about, I guess. But...
1: And Google agrees with you, they are an arachnid. Oh, phew, phew. my boss was about to kill me.
0: <laughs> all right. That sounds like a really interesting combination of things to be doing. Like, really interesting. It's fun. It definitely keeps every day interesting because the second I'm done with one job, I can turn around and be like, oh, pseudoscorpion time, or oh, DNA time, or oh, reading time. Oh, yeah. So, like, every day is completely different, but kind of all revolves around really interesting lab work or learning really new niche lab techniques or methods and things like that which I really value because I really like hands-on work so yeah getting to work with these weird and wonderful animals is awesome.
1: Well I'm enjoying it and that's just secondhand. (laughs) I'm glad. (laughs) What are some of the skills you need to be able to do all this work?
0: Um, So for me honestly I didn't have a molecular background getting into this. I am started volunteering at the museum when I was in my second year of university and that was just in the entomology department or the bug department Um, and yeah to start with it was just like pinning out insects and sorting them, labelling, taking photos, things like that but then you kind of get these hand-eye skills from either using micro pins for plant bugs which are three millimetres long or things like that. So you start working with really small, intricate things. And then then I kind of yeah, kind of moved from the bugs into mammals where I was working with tissues from all these different bandicoots and things like that. So then you're working with really precious samples that are stored in minus 80 freezes. So you have to be really quick and organized and things like that. So I got all like really good organizational skills from that type of stuff I guess. And then yeah slowly kind of moved in through all of those departments into my now PhD and the work I do now and that all came with getting trained in a molecular lab and so then yeah you learn all the schools skills from basic pipetting to DNA extractions to DNA amplification and how to read DNA sequences and things like that so it was all just through training and yeah now I can confidently work in a lab independently and i've been able to train other students which has been really wonderful and great because it kind of tests me and makes sure i know i want know what i'm doing and what i'm talking about before i can train anyone else which i think is really really helpful but yeah so to be honest it is all just through getting one skill at a time whether that be steady hands or whether that be organization or clean bench skills or tying my hair up in the lab <laughs> not sneezing in the wrong place things like that but yeah so it's been an odd accumulation from a whole different bunch of things I've done but yeah I think skills in terms of what you need to do for this work is just persistence <laughs> you just, if it doesn't work I
1: do it again <laughs> and things like that so it sounds like one of your skills had to be learning
0: Oh, absolutely, and the willingness to learn. I think that's that's exactly what a PhD is. I think a lot of people hear the term PhD and think, oh, so you have to be this, like, really highly intelligent, antisocial type A person, but I completely disagree and I think the whole point of a PhD is to, like, you make a mistake and then you figure out what that mistake is and then you figure out how to fix it and then you figure out what went wrong and... It's just learning every single day and, yeah, the whole point of a PhD is to learn and to get better and to get more knowledge and more skills and, yeah, just keep going, I suppose, and love it. Like, yeah, we choose this pathway, I suppose, because we love learning or we love finding solutions to our own problems and, I mean, that doesn't always come on your own you certainly collaborate and ask questions and work with your peers and things like that but yeah the whole point of my PhD has just been a big learning experiment (laughs) which has yeah been wonderful
1: it it does the way you're talking about it now sounds delightful
0: yeah I hope I definitely yeah I think it's a pretty special job to be able to say that every day I just get to act like a big kid and make a mistake and then figure out what I did wrong and I mean yeah of course it's not always great to be like oh damn my weeks worth of lab work didn't work I've got to do it again but at the same time that's great because then the next time I do it I'll do it perfectly and then I'm yeah then able to teach someone else how to not make that mistake or talk about the fact that I did make that mistake and break it all down and learn the little tricks of the trade to make it all better and yeah I think that's awesome I think that's super fun and if I could keep doing that for the rest of my career, I'd be a pretty happy person for sure.
1: It's kind of all we can hope for, really.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: How have you, you sort of touched on it a little bit, but how did you make your way from high school to where you are now? Like, what was your career journey there?
0: Yeah, good question. Um, so I was, I grew up on like the southern west point of Western Australia and All of my backyards were nature reserves or we lived near the beach and although it's, of course, very cold being in southwest Western Australia, it's um, picturesque. It's green and the water's so crystal blue. So, yeah, any day after school, any weekend, I was outside in the bush or at the beach and just playing and climbing and digging and surfing and things like that. So I think I got the love for the natural world as a very young girl and then yeah moving through high school I did biology as one of my TE subjects and really loved that so knew I wanted to keep doing that in in undergraduate so then I moved into university where I did a conservation wildlife and marine degree and then through that time is when I started volunteering at the museum and I think that's Volunteering at the museum was definitely where I started to really appreciate biodiversity and evolutionary biology because, um, yeah, I was working in the entomology department so I would just pull out drawers and drawers and drawers of insects and just see, like, butterflies of every colour or beetles of every colour, spiders of every colour. So it was just, it was so interesting that in one room there was thousands of different species around me all at one time and I could just look at every single little one and see that on two bugs that looked the same one had antennas that were five times longer than the other one or one had hind limbs that were three times thicker than the other one and so it's just weird and wonderful stuff that I could just look at and say like well why is that so same but so different and then yeah so I really started to appreciate every evolutionary biology whilst volunteering. Um, And I was supervised by the entomology curator. His name is Dr. Nikolai Tatanik. And he is also just the biggest bug evolutionary biology, weird and wonderful science nerd that he was just so enthused by it that I think I absorbed that energy and was so excited because he would talk about these crazy things plants plant bugs do to each other or crazy bugs that mimic other bugs and he was just so excited by it all so then I got really excited and was like well I want to learn more and more and so then I did a honours degree which is just a year-long postgraduate studies program it's really an Australian thing to be honest it's not really done worldwide I guess but yeah so we did an honours degree where he was my supervisor and I looked at water bugs in Western Australia. So these are these like two millimetre insects that live on the surface of freshwater all along Western Australia and um, they have these crazy mating lives where the males will jump on the females' back and then the females will roll around in this crazy dance to try and shake him off and drown him and injure him and then he'll be holding on with all these different appendages that he's evolved to clasp her. And it was just this weird and wonderful Bug dance and bug fight. So, yeah, I got to look at that and look at all these new clasping mechanisms that the different sexes had evolved to fight off or fight each other, which was really fun. So, that was a year of that. And then I started to look toward my PhD and I knew I wanted to do something in the Antarctic realm. I've been obsessed with the Antarctic environment since I was such a little girl. I remember. I think it was about my year seven or year six I'm not too sure but we were asked to pick an Australian figure and write something interesting about them so just out of a hat I pulled Sir Douglas Mawson's name which is one of Australia's first Antarctic explorers and so yeah I just learned about the Antarctic system and the harsh environment through that and I've just I've honestly been obsessed ever since um so yeah I knew I wanted to Direct my career that way, but I had this newfound love for evolutionary biology. I'm obsessed with invertebrates, so anything that doesn't have a backbone or is squishy or a little ugly looking, I'm a huge fan of. <laughs> I just think they're so interesting, and there's yeah, there's so many weird and wonderful traits that invertebrates have that I was really interested in kind of combining all of these loves, and so I was looking toward the University of Tasmania and I was looking at copepods, which are these crustaceans and they're in the Antarctic pelagic system and so I was really intrigued about those and microplastics because I really wanted to do something that could potentially influence future management plans or conservation efforts toward the Antarctic system um, so, yeah, I'd found supervisors and I'd found a project and I was about to move to Tasmania and kind of started talking about it at the museum, being like, oh, you know, I'm going to go do some Antarctic stuff over in Tassie. And then my now supervisor overheard me talking about it and she pulled me into her office and was just like, you know, Paige, just come have a chat. Just come talk to me for a minute. And I was like, oh, OK, yeah, sure. What's this about? And then she started talking about my now PhD project. And just honestly, as she was talking, I had these like firework moments going off in my head. Like, yes, that's exactly what I want. Yes, that sounds amazing. Yes, give me that. Yes, let me do that. Yes, let me look at that. Um, So yeah, I honestly had this one conversation and then cancelled all of Tasmania. (laughs) And yeah, I pretty much signed up with, Dr. Nerida Wilson who's my own PhD supervisor now and we've been working on Doris ever since which is just yeah so it's just it was a real weird pathway for sure but I think I've always known the fun parts of every day every part of the work I've done I really loved certain aspects so being able to combine everything from yeah marine science to Antarctic systems to evolutionary biology, to lab work, to computer work, to supercomputer work, like I get to kind of combine all of these beautiful aspects of science, so yeah, I was really excited about it all. And then now I'm here
1: <laughs> And you're kind of at the pointy end of the PhD now.
0: Oh, yes. Yes, I am, yeah, lots of writing, so much data, yeah, kind of stand staring right at the end now, I guess, which is. Very daunting, but also really exciting because it means I'm at the point where I can start communicating all of this work and sharing how excited I am about all my results with the broader scientific community, which is hopefully going to lead me to future collaborators or future jobs, future projects together, things like that. So, yeah, it's all, I think the exciting stuff's definitely still to come. Although, maybe, yeah, longer days of sitting in front of the computer writing, but that's definitely the part we sign up for. <laughs> that's part of the package. Definitely. Can't have one without the other, I guess.
1: What inspired you to volunteer at the museum in the first place?
0: Probably, so maybe a little, on the darker side of sciences, I guess you get told pretty early on that there's it's really competitive in the job scheme of scientific careers and um, through undergrad they really do kind of maybe not emphasise it enough but there is this big looming cloud saying that, yes, like an undergraduate in conservation or wildlife or marine science can't really get you a job anymore so you do have to get postgraduate studies, not for everything, not for every type of job but the job that I knew I wanted to do in research, I probably couldn't do with just graduating with an undergraduate and saying, please hire me. So I think, yeah, I learned that quite early on in my undergraduate degree. So I knew that I had to put my feelers out there and hopefully do some things for free to either help or gain skills and things like that. And then one of my undergraduate courses actually took us to the museum as a field trip. And they showed us all of the collections. They showed us all of the research labs. We heard from all of these curators. And then one of the curators we got to listen to and learn about was Nick, Dr. Nikolai Titanic, and he talked about his research. And I think his energy and excitement for the weirdness of it all really inspired me to email him the next day and be like, please let me help with what you do. That sounds so cool. That sounds so, in like, just crazy (laughs) so of course I want to help um so yeah I think it was just like perfect timing of (laughs) being at that right point in my undergrad where I knew that I needed to start volunteering and started to learn from other people and then yeah getting this field trip seeing the right people to contact at the right time was wonderful and then I honestly just haven't left (laughs) I think I don't know if they regret that, but as soon as they let me in, I've just not not left <laughs> every week for the past seven years.
1: <laughs> That's fantastic though.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been good. It's an incredible place to work. I mean, you can be sitting at a in a tea room and you've got someone who's the world-leading expert on spiders, the world-leading expert on reptiles, one of the most interesting authors of global sponges. And yeah, you're just sitting in this room full of, brilliant people with interesting topics and everyone's learning about something completely different and amazing and yeah it's truly inspiring to be sitting around all of these people every day and hear about their work and they talk it talk about it so casually and so as if it's not a big deal but it's amazing the work that these people do so yeah getting to surround myself with that of course I wouldn't let that go that's such an incredible opportunity
1: I feel like it's a, uh, I mean, obviously it's an awesome opportunity for you, but it's also a good reminder for everyone listening that, you know, if you can go check out your local museum because they're really cool.
0: Absolutely. Gosh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. They're amazing. And volunteering at one if anyone ever is looking for volunteer opportunities, whether you're 19 or 90, it's the best place to volunteer because there is, something for everyone so you can either be using 3d scanners to mold 3d printed animals that could potentially go into collections or you could take photos of animals that have never been taken their images of before or you can sit there and pin bug after bug which is what i did for years and it's weirdly therapeutic to just be like okay that one's perfect next one (laughs) that one's perfect next one (laughs) It's incredible and so much fun. So yeah, there's really something for everything, everyone. If you ever, if anyone ever is looking for an opportunity to volunteer, I think con- contacting curators and museums is the best place to start.
1: I love it. You've you've touched on a lot of really cool things, but is there like the coolest part of your job that you'd want, like to share?
0: Ooh, coolest part about my job, I think probably highlighting how biodiverse the southern and antarctic oceans really are i think that is super cool because yeah obviously no one really knows and it's something that a lot of people never even think about the fact that there is so much life going on down there and i think at this time when global climates are changing so rapidly and we've got a lot of anthropogenic pressures that are influencing our environment from day to day. The fact that I can still work and go to work every day and say like, we've got a new species and now we need to figure out ways to incorporate this into the global body of science to hopefully protect these areas, I think is extremely important because I mean, sure, it's just a sea slug, but it could be a sea slug in an incredibly unique environment or collected from a really hard to collect space so i think that's very important and really cool and i yeah i really like the fact that i get to learn about not just sea slugs because i'm working on them but i also get to learn about you know amphipods and sponges and corals and all these weird animals and weird ecosystems and environments just because they are all facing the same environmental pressures so yeah the fact that I do just get to kind of dive into all these weird and wonderful systems I think is really cool to me. I know that may sound a little cheesy and lame to a lot of people, but it's just there's so much going on and I think it's really special to be able to even just try and understand the tiniest part of this frozen planet down there is really, really special.
1: Especially as I my suspicion would be that most people would go Antarctica equals maybe whales, probably penguins. There's an outside chance yes. they'd get it really wrong and think polar bears. Oh um, yeah. and, and it's a shame and I don't know how we communicate it better, but just the absolute richness of what's down there.
0: Um, Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And yeah, you're absolutely not wrong. That's, I get polar bears every week. <laughs> Someone says, ah, oh, cool. Color bears. And I'm like, that's north, but yeah. <laughs> no. um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, even everything that we do know about the organisms that are down there of all of these animals we've either collected, or named, or described, I mean, over half of them are still classed as rare because they've only been collected once or twice since the 1900s when, I mean, early 1900s when they started to be collected. Um, And this is, yeah, of course, a big combination of reasons why, whether it's the harsh environment, hard to collect, expensive to get to, for example, running research vessels is an incredibly expensive operation. So things like that really limit all these samples. But then there's also the other geological limitations like most of the Antarctic continental shelf is deeper than a thousand meters as well so yeah you then need different methods to be able to collect such deep living things so yeah it's just it's amazing because it's in some ways less explored than space I mean in a lot of ways less explore, less explored than space um, which I think is pretty amazing because yeah of course a kid who loves the biological world, of course, is going to be so interested in space. But I think what's even cooler than space is, yeah, some of these deep sea environments that no one knows a thing about, may never know a thing about in our lifetime. And that's just, yeah, blows my mind. Blows my mind that there's so much going on.
1: I love that there's so much going on that we don't know about as well.
0: It's like, there could be anything. Me too. Definitely. Definitely. And that's, yeah, I think that'll be like my fuel forever is there's always going to be something new. (laughs) And that is, yeah, really cool.
1: What's some advice that you'd give to a young page who's considering this kind of career? Like is there any sort of, yeah, any words of wisdom you'd like to share?
0: Definitely. If I could have told myself 10 years ago that... I think going through university, I thought that day one, I had to be perfect. Day one, I had to get a HD. Same as in high school, I needed to get a 99 ATAR score. I needed to be great. But I think the biggest thing I've learned is that you need to be prepared for rejection and you're going to make mistakes and to just not be afraid Of making these mistakes realizing you're wrong realizing you need to change and realizing that that's probably one of the most useful aspects of everything you're going to learn is that these mistakes are only going to teach you to be better these mistakes are only going to teach you to see things from a different avenue or take a step back and realize that that's not the whole picture and things like that like i think yeah it's not about being perfect it's about Improving. I think I would have loved to have known that when I was younger and realized that a mistake doesn't feel great at the time, but it's the most useful part about what you're doing each day is that you're gonna, if you touch that burning hot plate, you know to never touch it again and things like that. So, yeah, just to not get too wrapped up in the little mistakes and realize that you're learning from them, which I think is the best part about it all.
1: I love that. And when you put it in context of high school as well, often at high school it doesn't feel like there's space to make mistakes and definitely not. yeah it's a really it's yeah it's not a like it's safe to fail kind of environment and yeah it is so important in the real world
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely and i think a lot of people yeah are so afraid of making mistakes or admitting that they don't know or admitting that they don't understand but i think that's the best thing I've learned is that if I don't know I can just ask the question and instead of scratching my head for days and weeks on the end and feeling like oh my gosh I'm never going to figure this out I can just ask and someone will know or someone is will help whether that be a teacher or a family member or a university lecturer or a friend or yeah I think it's so important to just take a breath take a step back realize you know this is only one millisecond of one day of my whole life so I need to take a step back and be like okay new way of thinking about it or yeah things like that I think taking a breath would be good for younger Paige (laughs) I think that's
1: great advice I mean I think it can also apply to probably most of us at some point
0: yeah yeah definitely definitely (laughs) throughout all aspects of life as well maybe not just Research or studies,
1: hundred percent. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Ooh, pleasure. What's something you wish the general public understood, and this could be anything. I can see a lot of things that. But but are there myths other than polar bears <laughs> in the south that uh, you'd like to take this opportunity to try and give a good squashing?
0: Ooh, um, maybe not so much, but maybe the PhD. Title in general, I guess I know. I and my peers certainly get a lot of questions a week, being like, "Oh, are you in exams right now?" or "Oh, when semester end?" and things like that. So I suppose our big day-to-day one is that a PhD is we are full-time working researchers, and you know it's a full-time working commitment, and this yeah, for a lot of my peers and I it does involve. A lot of outside of work hours and things like that, and I mean, yeah, it is just like it's a it's a full on year, like a full on couple of years for any PhD student, absolutely. But we don't do exams. <laughs> I get asked that a lot, especially this time of year when it's coming into that for undergraduates, and everyone's like, "Oh, so when are you finished?" I'm like, "Oh, I mean, I wish I had six weeks off over December, January, but." <laughs> No, (laughs) but that's just so minor that's yeah nothing too wild
1: it's just a funny thing for people
0: yeah
1: that one perplexes me
0: (laughs) me too same as the oh you did zoology are you going to be a zookeeper question that one is always pretty funny when you get asked that
1: (laughs) I think the other one that would be sort of valuable for people to pick up is that the Antarctic marine ecosystem is so rich and there's so much going on down there and we do need to protect it and
0: definitely, it isn't just like automatically Absolutely. protected.
1: Like it's something we need to actively make sure keeps happening.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it's um, been classed as one of the top three, well, the Antarctic Peninsula has been classed as one of the top three most globally rapidly heated or heating places in the world. So, yeah, the threats are real and imminent and happening quickly. Um, This past year they had an 18-degree day in Antarctica, which is the hottest on record by far and has a lot of longer-lasting impacts than just one warm day. So, yeah, there's huge global threats that are happening and, I mean, increasing pressures from human tourism, fishing, mining, it's all happening and then anything we do on our Australian lands or anything we do globally still impacts it, whether it be, yeah, CO2 emissions and things like that. They're all they are all directly develop- affecting the frozen continent and it's definitely going to be pretty scary because there's huge, huge implications for what could happen if these glaciers do retreat a lot more or if it gets too hot for certain organisms like penguins and things like that too. Like, yeah, it's it's pretty scary. So absolutely. I think working right now to do as much as we can to protect not only for our lifetime but for all lifetimes is so important because yeah, as I said, there could be up to 17,000 benthic species just on the Antarctic continental shelf and we as humans are just one species so yeah the fact that our footprint could leave lasting effects on 17,000 other just in this one environment not to speak of the rest of the world is a crazy thought so yeah absolutely i mean i may just be working on sea slugs but i want to be working on them because they are found throughout the entire antarctic ocean and on the southern south american continental shelf too So being able to highlight biodiversity in these hard-to-sample, hard-to-access areas is really important because that could flow through into management plans and conservation efforts and, yeah, we could assign marine protected areas based off of benthic communities and things like that. So I think that's incredibly important and huge for anyone interested in conservation and biodiversity, I think trying to highlight biodiversity in areas where people may not realize it exists is a great place to start for future conservation super super important
1: and like remembering that just because something's far away and it's really kind of extreme and cold doesn't mean you can't affect it definitely yeah definitely absolutely is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share
0: I think maybe people don't really know what nudibranchs or sea slugs are in general. I think I know when I say that I work on nudibranchs, everyone instantly gives me a blank stare and I'm like, oh, you know, sea slugs, they kind of look like sea cucumbers. They're everywhere. Um, But, yeah, they truly are in every single ocean you can think of over the entire globe. There's over 3,000 species of these things Um, and they are honestly just the most beautiful animals you could imagine if you google nudibranch n-u-d-i-b-r-a-n-c-h you can just see your google will fill with fluoro colors of blues greens purples pinks oranges and they are just the most remarkable animals because not only are they so cute and so pretty but they're also some of the most poisonous animals in the world they're Crazy because some of them can steal algae and steal chloroplasts from algae and then they can sequester the energy. So they're basically solar powered organisms, which does not happen in anything other than protists, which are singular celled and yeah, amazing. So things like that, or some other sea slugs are pelagic, which means they're found in the open ocean and they eat. Portuguese man's war which are these crazy jellyfish which are yeah like if humans come in contact with them we could die but these sea slugs just eat them steal their stinging cells and transfer them to the skin for their own protection um some sea slugs make their own chemical defense compounds which are much like the ones that I work on so they create all of these highly toxic compounds which are completely new to science and yeah could have medicinal of Uses such as killing leukemia, cancerous cells, and things like that. So, yeah, they're in, they're so cute and so crazy. <laughs> so yeah, I think nudibranchs. Just in general, if everyone's bored on a lazy Sunday and Googled them, you'd have a fun afternoon.
1: <laughs> Having just done that, I'm I'm going to second that because it's it's an amazing Google rabbit hole. That one yeah
0: gosh yeah how big are they um honestly they range so the ones I look at range from about three to 13 centimeters so yeah that's about your palm um but others can be millimeters and then others can be 60 centimeters or longer some are huge some can swim some yeah kind of do this big undulating dance where they kind of flap around in the water column but Yeah, they full on have this beautiful movement. And so, yeah, some can get really, those ones are really big. They're called Spanish dancers. They're the biggest of them. But, yeah, so they really do range. If you kind of go to your local beach, I guess the most common size you'll see would be kind of fingernail to finger length would probably be your standards. But, yeah, you do get really, really tiny and really, really big, which is awesome.
1: And they're they're a slug.
0: Yes, yeah. So they're related, so they're a mollusk. They're related to octopus and cuttlefish and um, squids. So, yeah, they're a mollusk. Sea snails, things like that. Land snails, um, they're related. So, yeah, slugs and snails. Awesome. (laughs) Can you eat them? Um, I know that sometimes they are eaten and apparently it's like eating an eraser (laughs) in terms of texture. But most of them are highly, highly, highly toxic and would do terrible things to your internal organs. So I would absolutely not recommend it. Um, But I think, yeah, in some parts of the world, some species are. And I have read reports of the eraser comment and I found that really funny (laughs) because it just doesn't sound appetizing to me (laughs) at all. I can't, I feel like my dad
1: was given one once no way oh my goodness where was he in in China but I can't remember if okay. it was a nudibrank or what's the other thing that's like a slug sea cucumber it was a sea cucumber that's what it was yeah potentially
0: they're certainly eating them a fair yeah. bit too that yeah. was
1: underwhelming I think
0: yeah. <laughs> I am not surprised yeah. oh my goodness I don't think I could be paid to eat one I am good <laughs> I love the idea
1: of us all. Cool. Is there a brank appreciation day?
0: Um, no, there certainly should be, but yes, no, there isn't yet. That's disappointing because no. there, there should be. <laughs> yeah, when could we make it
1: for? I mean, there's donut day, like yeah, right. Whatever it's else National Sandwich there. Day.
0: <laughs> yeah, there really is. That's so true. All right, let's start one. yeah
1: we'll start a petition i don't know who will petition but we can just invent it i think
0: my boss would absolutely get around that she would love it
1: (laughs) okay and just to wrap up have you got a shout out or a virtual high five that you'd like everyone listening to the podcast to give to someone or something
0: oh that's a hard one this is quite local i suppose but the western australian museum boulevard has just is about to open and it's been under construction for about four and a half years so we've got this huge big museum which is incredible um so anyone who ever comes to Perth should definitely go check that out because it is absolutely breathtaking it's a sensory overload you'll be exhausted by the end of the day but you will learn so much so quickly I think museums in general definitely do get little bit of a bad rap just kind of outdated or boring or archaic but they are truly full of the most interesting people and interesting realms of science and yeah I think they're really important so I think I'd love to see more people really get engaged with their museums I think that's really special but yeah honestly I think just A big one for me day to day is I'm a big advocate of the take three for the sea or take five for your dive. I'm huge on that and I think it's so important to just Mm -hmm. take care of our wonderful earth and, yeah, make sure that if you see something that doesn't look natural, just pick it up, put it in the bin. It's so easy. It's so good to do. Um, Things like that I think can make such a huge difference. So, yeah, big things like that, absolutely.
1: Love it. So high five to all the museum workers and obviously go hang out at a museum if you can or obviously if you can volunteer at one, go for it. And we'll find some information about like Take Three for the Sea and those kind of programs so that
0: people can get involved and
1: hopefully build up a little bit of confidence that the little things that you do really do make a difference
0: definitely definitely if everyone did one little thing a day the world would be a much better place I think so yeah absolutely we can all fight for the big fights but yeah just do those little things in your daily lives that will make a big long-term difference absolutely yeah love it
1: thank you so much Paige this has been well educational and also very inspiring
0: so thank you so much for coming on the show No, thank you so much for having me. I've had so much fun. So yeah, really thank you so much for your time too.
1: Thanks so much for tuning in this year. If you like this podcast, you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter. You can also now sign up to our Patreon, which means that if you so choose, you can financially support Avid Research. And I have a massive shout out to our very first Patreon, David Lee, who is a fantastic human being. As a result of being a patreon he now gets to ask questions he gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats and he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast so thanks so much david and if you want to be number two you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on patreon that'd be fantastic